Alrighty, cool. We'll continue this exploration of the history of sexuality, volume one. So now we're moving into part four, the deployment of sexuality, where Foucault starts by stating that the aim of this series of studies, question mark, to transcribe into history the fable of les bijoux indiscrets, which translates into English as um, indiscreet uh, jewelry. So he what immediately follows this is a is a very nice um, little entry into this wonderful series. He says, among its many emblems, our society wears that of the talking sex, the, the sex which one catches unawares and questions and which, restrained and loquacious at the same time, endlessly replies. One day a certain mechanism, which was so elfin-like that it could make itself invisible, captured the sex and, in a game that combined pleasure with compulsion and consent with inquisition, made it tell the truth about itself and others as well. So he's building off of what he was arguing in the first half of this book pretty well, that sex was really given a face over the course of time, a face that it didn't always have. And it was, I guess, forced, brought into fruition, where he, this is, of course, in opposition to the Freudian the uh, repressive hypothesis that would suggest that there were these large mechanisms at play in downplaying sex, whereas for Foucault, he actually saw the emergence of sex as being something to consider, and the way that we aren't really repressed in the way that Freud would have it. So he frames that in this way. He says, or asks, but is sex hidden from us, concealed by a new sense of decency, kept under a bushel by the grim necessities of bourgeois society? On the contrary, it shines forth. It is incandescent. So this is even to be seen in Freud, according to Foucault, not citing Freud specifically, but Foucault traces, or I, I guess identifies, that there is an obsession with sex. With, with sex. With sex. My Sean Connery on there. So he says that, but it was centuries ago that countless theoreticians and practi practitioners of the flesh, whose approach was hardly scientific, it is true, made man the offspring of an imperious and intelligible sex. Sex, the explanation for everything. Certainly um, a jab at the Freudian maxim pertaining to the repressive hypothesis or the location of sex, reducing things to, to sex. And this is, you know, one of Foucault's staples, whether it be in critique of Marxism, whether it be in critique of uh, Freud, is that they all reduce their own, I guess, um, their own doctrines to some presupposed uh, axioms. So in the case of Marx, you know, you have class struggle as being the number one determining factor of life, of society. It's more complicated than that, obviously, but it's kind of, you know, for simplicity's sake. In the case of Freud here, we have sex, where everything can be reduced to this single point. Whereas Foucault wants to say, no, this is rather naive to assume that. So sex being that marker of truth, that thing that was could be kind of unearthed, and that was certainly seen in the mid, you know, mid, little past the mid 20th century, with the sexual liberation or whatever, whatever have you, uh, there was the attachment of a sort of notion of liberation around sexuality, as though fundamentally what makes us human is our sexuality, and we have all these, you know, especially in the relation to capitalism, we have all of these kind of oppressive institutions designed to keep sex at bay. Whereas Foucault asks us, and why was the task of discovering this difficult truth finally turned into an invitation to eliminate taboos and break free of what binds us? He's very curious about this question, and it really, he'll work to it, especially in the, his last last sentence of the, of the whole book, but we'll get there. We'll, you know, we'll keep the suspense going. For now, he gives us uh, kind of a, 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 I don't want to say a methodology because he <laughs> strays away from that, but he, he works through these questions rather methodically at this point, beginning with number one, the objective. So to kind of curb any possible rebuttal, while, um, while welcoming it, Foucault says that he was, in the first half of this book, a little bit loose with some of his terminology. And th this is rather difficult to 
you know, grasp, at least for me. Uh, but he says that when dealing with topics like repression and law, he says that he often is not as clear as he could be on what constitutes either. So then he presents a kind of theoretical rebuttal to his own project where someone is saying, by constantly referring to positive technologies of power, you are playing a double game where you hope to win on all counts. You confuse your adversaries by appearing to take the weaker position and discussing repression alone, you would have us believe wrongly that you have rid yourself of the problem of law and yet you keep the essential practical consequence of the principle of power as law namely the fact that there is no escaping from power, that it is always already present, constituting that very thing which one attempts to counter it with. So to this kind of hypothetical rebuttal, Foucault says that what he's going to try and do then is not conduct or try to provide uh, an analysis of what he calls the theory of power, but rather he is interested in what he calls an analytics of power. So what this analytics of power looks like for him is as follows. It is the movement toward a definition of the specific domain formed by relations of power and toward a determination of the instruments that will, that will make possible its analysis. So both of these kinds of approaches correspond to a specific domain of uh, the discourse around desire or around desire itself, where he says that the thematics of repression and the theory of the law both constitute desire. So this is why he feels like he needs to um, address the, fun the implicit problem within his project because as that imaginary theoretical approach had it, it suggested that when Foucault is speaking about power in terms of law, it is an always already kind of present situation right? So there is no possible way out of it. So even that sort of rebuttal that Foucault puts forth, or uh, his own project, I mean, it is always within the confines of that system. So Foucault wants to take it another way, and this is where we get something of a kind of Foucauldian praxis, even if it's just at the level of method here. So he makes a fundamental distinction to do this. He says, of course, both of these situations are formed around the idea of power, they both utilize power to some extent, and they both benefit from power. So if power has what he calls an external hold over desire, then there is the possibility of a way out. There is a kind of what he calls a promise of liberation. Whereas if you have a system that, is, uh, it, that constitutes desire, that determines in the very moment that desire is created that it will be a part of the power relations that I guess constitute it, you are always already trapped within that very system. So he's making a very fundamental distinction here between the possibility of kind of escape and the possibility that no escape is even possible. That is, if we frame our discourse of escape, of emancipation around sort of liberatory politics that believe there to be such a thing as an outside, there to be such a thing that, or such a thing of sexuality that points to a kind of liberation, whereas Foucault wants to turn all of these ideas kind of on their head to suggest that maybe to some extent this whole discourse around liberation works in favor of the very kind of systemic modes of oppression that put, it, put us in this position in the first place. I hope I've been effective at kind of sifting out that, uh, the relationship between the two terms. I don't find that he's incredibly clear here, but, you know, it could just be my poor reading. I'd be curious to see what anyone else has to say about it. So upon theorizing these kinds of different approaches, Foucault says that there are a number of ways we can interpret the relationship of power to sex. So firstly, we have what, what he calls the negative relation. So this goes as follows. Where sex and pleasure are concerned, power can do nothing but say no to them. What it produces, if anything, is absences and gaps. It overlooks elements, introduces discon discontinuities, separates what is joined, and marks off boundaries. Its effects take the general form of limit and lack, which might be how we have historically considered uh, the relationship of power with sex, where power is that thing that is intended to limit it, which I think is fair. 
The second one goes as follows. The insistence of the rule. So this one is a little bit more, uh, I guess, um, not quite as oppressive, and it goes as follows. Power is essentially what dictates its law to sex, which means first of all that sex is placed by power in a binary system, licit and illicit, permitted and forbidden. Secondly, power describes an order for sex that operates at the same time as a form of intelligibility. Sex is to be deciphered on the basis of its relation to the law. And finally, power acts by laying down the rule. Power's hold on sex is maintained through language, or rather through the act of discourse that creates, from the very fact that it is articulated a rule of law. So of this particular situation, he says that uh, the mode of action with regard to sex is of a, and this is important, juridicio discursive character, right? So there is a very clear disciplinary kind of formation instilled onto sexuality. And through that, it almost uh, presents a foray, foray, a kind of opening into the possibility of engaging with, criticizing, evaluating that very judicial discursive formation by looking at sex, because that is where it exerts authority. At least that's one of the places where it does. So now the third one, the cycle of prohibition. Thou shalt not go near, Thou shalt not touch, thou shalt not consume, thou shalt not experience pleasure, thou shalt not speak, thou shalt not show thyself. Ultimately, thou shalt not exist, except in darkness and secrecy. To deal with sex, power employs nothing more than a law of prohibition. Its objective, that sex renounce itself, its instrument, the threat of a punishment that is nothing other than the suppression of sex. Renounce yourself or suffer the penalty of being suppressed. Do not appear if you want to disappear. So I guess this has more of an affinity with the kind of religious uh, doctrines around power and, and sexuality. Uh, I think that's fair enough. And then into the fourth one here, the logic of censorship, which is the interdiction is thought to take three forms, affirming that such a thing is not permitted, preventing it from being said, denying that it exists. Forms that are difficult to reconcile, but it is here that one imagines a sort of logical sequence that characterizes censorship mechanisms. It links the inexistent, the illicit, and the inexpressible in such a way that each is at the same time the principle and the effect of the others. One must not talk about what is forbidden until it is annulled in reality. What is inexistent has no right to show itself, even in the order of speech, where its inexistence is declared, and that which one must keep silent about it is banished from reality as the thing that is tabooed above all else. So don't ask, don't tell kind of logic. If it's there, it's there. If it's not, it doesn't even deserve to fall into the particular form formulation. So it's not as though there's an explicit kind of uh, desire to maintain, to control sex, but rather a kind of foreclosing of the possibility for sex to manifest itself in whatever kind of different ways that it can, precisely because those other formations are considered non non real, right? There have been there's been a clear establishment of what sex is, where that form of sex is not necessarily repressed in the other kind of uh, formations that we've been speaking of here, but rather the oppression occurs by closing off the possibility of that sex to develop or developing. And then finally, the fifth, the fifth one, the uniformity of the apparatus. So this notion around power is that power over sex is exercised in the same way at all levels, from top to bottom, and it's all over decisions and its capillary interventions alike. Whatever the devices or institutions on which it relies, it acts in a uniform and comprehensive manner. It operates according to the simple and endlessly produced, reproduced mechanisms of law, taboo, and censorship. From state to family, from prince to father, from the tribunal to the small, change of everyday punishments, from the agencies of social domination to the structures that constitute the subject himself, one finds a general form of power varying in scale alone. So this is the, perhaps in a sense, a kind of panoptic um, situation that, you know, as Foucault writes in um, Discipline and Punish, the panopticon that produces homogenous effects of power, where it itself has a kind of homogenous character, right? But it, you know, it produces individuals at the same time, and it produces um, kind of capillary effects. But even in its capillary nature, it is a homogenous entity where it takes on that kind of singular 
um, non-present form, right? We're, we do not know if we're being watched, therefore we don't actually need to be being watched. Rather, it's just that very, um, the internalization of that structure, of that idea that makes us act a certain way. So with all these examples, however, power only manifests itself as a form that uh, silences it, a form that limits, as a form that renders people obedient. So he says that this is the paradox of its effectiveness. It is incapable of doing anything except to render what it dominates and capable of doing anything either, except for what this power allows it to do. So to this, Foucault asks rather bluntly, why? Are the deployments of power reduced simply to the procedure of the law of interdiction? To which he, he provides a kind of preliminary answer saying that because the strength of power is measured by this possibility, where he says that power is a pure limit set on freedom is, at least in our society, the general form of its acceptability. Where we have this kind of collective, um, collective notion of power in our minds and for that reason because it is you know it's a historical character to power uh, we are able to give it credit we are able to award it or celebrate it by performing the function that we have laid out for it notably by its ability to limit by its ability to interdict interdict you know what i mean foreclose so this being traced back to the law of the monarch or the law that the monarch enforced gives us something of a genesis of this um, of these discourses around power where Foucault says that at bottom despite the differences in epochs and objectives the representation of power has remained under the spell of monarchy in political thought and analysis we still have not cut off the king head of the king hence the importance that the theory of power gives to the problem of right and violence law and illegality freedom and will and especially the state and sovereignty even if the latter is questioned insofar as it is personified in a collective being and no longer a sovereign individual. So Foucault says that our task, or at least his task in this book, is to get out of this paradigm of thinking about power in terms of law, in terms of these kind of binary oppositions where, you know, we can structure this um, problem around sexuality as being a problem of liberation or oppression, right? These kind of simple dichotomies that Foucault is just simply not satisfied with. And in his words, we must at the same time conceive of sex without the law and power without the king. So here we enter into his method, ostensibly, where he gives us a kind of working definition of power as opposed to law, right? Because he wants to conceive of this thing in relation to power as he uh, theorizes it or how he considers power. So for him, by power, I do not mean power is a group of institutions and mechanisms that ensure the subservience of the citizens of a given state. By power, I do not mean either a mode of subjugation which in contrast to violence is the same form of the rule. Finally, I do not have in mind a general system of domination exerted by one group over another, a system, a system whose effects, through successive derivations, pervade the entire social body. The analysis made in terms of power must not assume that the sovereignty of the state, the form of the law, or the overall unity of a domination are given at the outset. Rather, these are only the terminal forms power takes. So in opposition to all of this, he says that it seems to me that power must be understood in the first instance as the multiplicity of force relations imminent, so inside of, in the sphere in which they operate and which constitute their own organization as the process which, through ceaseless struggles and confrontations, transforms, strengthens, or reverses them, as the support which these force relations find in one another, thus forming a chain or a system, or on the contrary, the disjunction and contradictions which isolate them from one another, and lastly, as the strategies in which they take effect, whose general design or institutional crystallization is embodied in the state apparatus, in the formulation of the law, in the various, so, in the various social hegemonies. So this isn't like a uh, too, too radical of an idea, I assume. Like, um, I think we're, we'd probably all be pretty familiar with these kind of Foucauldian tenets of power, uh, but he gives us very quick kind of um, summary where he says, and I'll just go through them kind of point form, he says that power is not something that is acquired, seized, or shared. That's number one. Number two, relations of power are not in a position of exteriority with respect to other types of relationships. 
So they work within those types of relationships, like economic processes, knowledge relationships, sexual relations, what have you, you know, insert fill in the blank here. Now, I will elaborate on the following one. And the following one goes as follows. Power comes from below. That is, there is no binary and all-encompassing opposition between rulers and ruled at the root of power relations and serving as a general matrix. No such duality extending from the top down and reacting on more and more limited groups to the very depths of the social body. One must suppose rather that the manifold relationships of force that take shape and come into play in the machinery of production in families limiting groups and institute limited groups and institutions are the basis for wide-ranging effects of cleavage that run through the social body as a whole these then form a general line of force that traverses the local oppositions and links them together to be sure they also bring about redistributions realignments homogenizations serial arrangements and convergences of the force relations sorry for reading that long quote but this one is in my mind the trickiest to kind of grasp because and i am I think Foucault would say, I am a victim of this very discourse of the law, discourse of the sovereign, kind of power paradigm of the sovereign, where I can think, of course, power comes from the top, and power is something that is exerted. Whereas, no, for Foucault, actually, these things, it's much more complicated than that. And when he says that power comes from below, I think he's being a little bit cheeky, uh, just uh, being a little provocative, turning the whole paradigm on its head rather than saying, you know, power comes from nowhere, right? By giving it a face here, he's being a little bit, uh, he's contradicting himself slightly, but he, he does it in a very playful way, I think. Uh, and then finally, the fourth one, power relations are both intentional and non-subjective. If, in fact, they are intelligible, this is not because they are the effect of another instance that explains them, but rather because they are imbued through and through with calculation. There is no power that is exercised without a series of aims and objectives so it can be i guess kind of traced in that sense and that is what foucault is hoping to do oh and of course there is one more i jumped the gun a little bit uh the the final one the fifth and final one he says that where there is power there is resistance so this is a very kind of classic foucaultian maxim uh where there's power there is resistance which fundamentally suggests that there is no such thing as a kind of um uh, a singular point of power to which all other things are rendered subordinate. Rather, because it works in the form of a network, and it therefore has the ability to kind of adapt and change, it can only operate as such if it takes into consideration its very antithetical elements and then internalize them, kind of inoculate itself from the possibility of crumbling by instilling that which threatens it even if it's in kind of homeopathic doses allowing for it to adapt and change but to never actually give up its kind of authoritative position and i use the term authoritative in a kind of um for lack of a better word but of course it's not as like singular or clear as a as a as an authoritative type system so then having established these kinds of you know these propositions Foucault frames his question in a very clear way. He says that in a specific type of discourse on sex, in a specific form of extortion of truth, appearing historically and in specific places around the child's body, apropos of women's sex, in connection with practices restricting births, and so on, what were the most immediate, the most local power relations at work? So to this question, he gives us four kind of methodological, um, I guess, uh, what is the word he uses? Uh, go to my book here. Duh, duh, duh. Kind of four rules, he says. He says that, and yeah, he, he loves lists. So for any people that's, that have read you know some of his other books, he loves lists of four, like three and four. Uh, he, he does that and he'll elaborate really, really well on all of them. It's a it's a very it's a complicated way to write too because you have to be cons really consistent. Um, but he, yeah, I digress. So number one here, he says there's the rule of imminence. So he says that if sexuality was constituted as an area of investigation, this was only because relations of power had established it as a possible object, 
and conversely, if power was able to take it as a target, this was because techniques of knowledge and procedures of discourse were capable of investing it. So between techniques of knowledge and strategies of power, there is no exteriority, even if they have specific roles and are linked together on the basis of their difference. So this is important. So it's not as though um, sexuality or the discourses around sexuality stand opposed to sexuality as an object. Rather, these things are all intertwined, and they are joined together in a network with this kind of analytics of power, with this kind of system of power. So when he says the rules of imminence, imminence being that kind of internal critique or the critique of coming from the inside, he doesn't want to suggest that any kind of discourse around sexuality can somehow stand outside of power, can stand outside of the discourses that govern even the conditions of sexuality, but rather to consider the fact that we are always already within that very paradigm. So we must, if we conduct a sort of critique, a sort of analysis, we must respect that kind of subject position that we are forced into. So number two now, the rules of continual variations. So he says we must not look for who has the power in order of sexuality, men, adults, parents, doctors, and who is deprived of it, women, adolescents, children, patients, nor for who has the right to know and who is forced to remain ignorant. We must seek rather the pattern of the modifications which the relations of force, relationships of force, imply by the very nature of their process. So it is in that way that we don't get bogged down with kind of general meta-theories pertaining to various loci of power, right? Where we can say that here's where power is exerted, there's where power is exerted, here's where it is, the, the effects are felt, and there the effects are felt. Rather, Foucault thinks that an effective measure of power's capability or an analysis of power must consider it across, I guess, across time and space. How is it exerted from between this point and this point? And how can we trace that development in order to get a better sense of the way in which it does not um, actually exist in singular spaces or in kind of select zones, but is a is a is an all-encompassing all-encompassing system that adapts and changes, kind of mutates over time. So here we have the third one, the rule of double conditioning, where he says that there is no local center, no pattern of transformation could function if through a series of sequences it did not eventually enter into an overall strategy. So he says that there, um, moving on actually, he says that Thus, the father in the family is not the representative of the sovereign or the state, and the latter are not the projections of the father on a different scale, because these explanations would be much too narrow for Foucault. Rather, the family does not duplicate society, just as society does not imitate the family, but the family organization precisely to the extent that it was insular and heteromorphous with respect to the other power mechanisms was used to support the great maneuvers employed for the control of the birth rate, for the populationist incitements, for the medicalization of sex, and the psychi psychiatrization of the non-genital forms, right? So how it's part and parcel of a system that, again, does not have a singular point, but is part of that very network. So then the fourth one, the rule of the tactical polyvalence of discourses. So to this, he presents kind of initial thesis pertaining to how discourse has been understood, where he says that what is said about sex must not be analyzed simply as the surface of projection of these power mechanisms. Rather, I'm jumping a bit here, Foucault wants us to consider the extent to which discourse actually works with power, how it's not just kind of a way to glimpse into power as a kind of preliminary analysis to get at the root of power, but it is power. What he says, discourse transmits and produces power. It reinforces it, but also undermines and exposes it, renders it fragile and makes it possible to thwart it. In like manner, silence and secrecy, secrecy are a shelter for power, anchoring its prohibitions, but they also loosen its holds and provide for relatively obscure areas of tolerance. So these four kind of rules for power are for Foucault uh, are rules for a kind of method towards power. Make it so that we don't get bogged down with the, the ideas around the law and instead that we focus on um, 
multiple and mobile fields of force relations, wherein far-reaching but never completely stable effects of domination are produced. So now, having established this kind of, these kind of methodological imperatives, we move into the realm of domain. So what, what are we really talking about here? So he says, In a first approach to the problem, it seems that we can distinguish four great strategic unities which, beginning in the 18th century, formed specific mechanisms of knowledge and power centering on sex. So, they are as follows. Number one, a hysterization, hysterization of women's bodies, a threefold process whereby the feminine body was analyzed, qualified, and disqualified as being thoroughly saturated with sexuality, whereby, is, whereby it was integrated into the sphere of medical practices by reason of a pathology intrinsic to it, whereby finally it was placed in organic communication with the social body. There's number one. Number two, a pedagogization of children's sex, a double assertion that practically all children indulge or, indulge or are prone to indulge in sexual activity, and that being unwarranted at the same time, natural and contrary to nature, this sexual activity posed physical and moral, individual and collective dangers. Children were defined as preliminary sexual beings on this side of sex, yet within it astride a dangerous dividing line. Number three, a socialization of procreative behavior an economic socialization via all the incitements and restrictions, the social and fiscal measures brought to bear on the fertility of couples, a political socialization achieved through the responsibilization of couples with regard to the social body as a whole. Number four, a psychiatrization, psychiatrization of perverse pleasure. The sexual instinct was isolated as a separate biological and physical instinct. A clinical analysis was made of all the forms of anomalies by which it could be afflicted. So to these four kind of strategic moves by, the, by this network of power, Foucault asks, was it a struggle against sexuality or were they part of an effort to gain control of it, an attempt to regulate it more effectively and masks it, or sorry, or was it an attempt to regulate it more effectively and mask its more indiscreet, conspicuous, and intractable aspects? Whereas to these questions, Foucault says quite simply that no, what these point to was the production of sexuality. So through its negation, whether it be by a kind of um, medical discursive practice, discursive practice, kind of medical discursive paradigm that intended with every breath it could muster to give a face to this thing called sexuality so that it could be suppressed, that it could be oppressed or repressed. Foucault says what you did in that or what occurred in that was the birth of this thing called sexuality, right? Because sexuality did not exist. And here is one of the one of the central critiques that I've heard of Foucault is that in theorizing thing uh, sexuality in this way or theorizing anything really in this way, Foucault is giving a lot of credit to these institutions that being capable of erecting these these various kind of cultural formations where some people say, well, hold on there. Like, what about the other domains that produce uh, that produce discourse, that produce knowledge, that produce power? It seems as though, Foucault, you're kind of limited in your constructions here. But, you know, maybe I'll get to one of those critiques at some point. Baudrillard kind of does it, but not not all that effectively, I don't find. He does it effectively in other ways. And through this kind of creation of sexuality, Foucault says that we kind of developed what he calls uh, or moved towards a deployment of alliance, a system of marriage, of fixation and development of kinship ties, of transmission of names and possession. This deployment of alliance with the mechanisms of constraint that ensured its existence and the complex knowledge it often required lost some of its importance as economic processes and political structures could no longer rely on it as an adequate instrument or sufficient support. And this will really come into be pertinent in the final, the final section, section when dealing with biopolitics. So the way that sex is able to give, I guess, provide for the genesis of these various kinds of notions of um, alliance of these various kinds of institutional formations of collectivity, whether it comes down to the to class or family or religion or anything like that, points to the way in which our analysis of sex is a pertinent one, and it must be conducted seriously, lest we mistake our target. So he says that if the politics of sex make little use of the law of the taboo, 
but brings into play an entire technical machinery, if what is involved is the production of sexuality rather than the repression of sex, then our emphasis has to be placed elsewhere. We must shift our analysis away from the problem of, for instance, labor capacity, and doubtless abandon the diffuse energetics that underlies the theme of a sexuality repressed for economic reasons. Because if we do that, we will, in the kind of Marcusean way, we would doubtless mistake our target and risk perpetuating the very same systems that we should be opposing. So then when did this all occur? So here we enter into his um, a kind of t a temporal analysis where he says that the history of sexuality supposes two ruptures if one tries to center it on mechanisms of repression. The first, occurring in the course of the 17th century, was characterized by the advent of the Great Prohibitions, the exclusive promotion of adult marital sexuality, the imperative of decency, the obligatory concealment of the body, the reduction to silence and mandatory reticences of language, and the second, a 20th century phenomenon, was really less a rupture than an inflection of the curve. This was the moment when the mechanism of repression, the mechanisms of repression were seen as beginning to loosen their grip. One passed from insistent sexual taboos to a relative tolerance with regard to prenuptial or extramarital relations. So how there was, you know, in the 17th century, that whole logic around repression, and then how there was the kind of explosion of sexuality in the 20th century. All right, so now I'm going to move into the last section, even though there's a lot, you know, a little bit more to be said about the kind of temporalization or the periodization of the sexuality, but it's, there are just so many um, kind of historical details that it would just take so long to actually uh, provide a narrative for it. Um, but he does give a very interesting account of the way that psychoanalysis developed as kind of reinscribing the notion of a, of a sort of truthfulness through the taboo, right? Through the thing that is repressed, we can get down into the very crux of whatever, you know, the, the, the human apparatus, right? That thing that lurks underneath, that thing that is fundamentally true, but it's, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. Like Freud was a prolific writer and changed drastically across all of his texts, really. So I am being rather general. Uh, and Foucault is not that general. He's much more specific and much more careful in his analysis. But generally, and he says it in this way, the task of truth was now linked to the challenging of taboos, right? Getting at... Uh, kind of unearthing through kind of archaeological excavation, unearthing what lies underneath, right? The, the thing that preceded everything else. So it's on that note, I'll move into the final, the final section here, which is probably the one that everyone has to read at some point in, you know, in school and university, grad school or whatever. And that is the chapter on biopolitics and the right, uh, how does it go? The right of death and power over life. So let's see what the hell he has to say here. So in this chapter, Foucault gives us some very interesting insights into the development or the transformation of the exertion of a kind of power, where at one time, in the case of the sovereign, power was exerted by killing, right? Killing was the thing that demonstrated the sovereign's power. And in, in um, Discipline and Punish, Foucault talks about this in relation to the spectacle of the scaffold. Right, where he says that there were public hangings, public executions that were a means by which the sovereign was able to show the kingdom their authority and to say, if you step out of line, this is what's going to happen to you. So for Foucault, the sovereign exercised his right of life only by exercising his right to kill or by refraining from killing. He evidenced his power over life only through the death he was capable of requiring. So this was for Foucault, the right to take life or let live, where if you weren't put to death, it is simply because that was what was um, desired by the sovereign. So even your life, even your being alive was through a sort of power, right? Through a very direct, singular form of power. So power was then a form of subtraction. Power, power was exerted by demonstrating one's ability to reduce, to take away from the kind of population, from the social population. And of course, at that time, as we will come to see, populations didn't exist, right? Kind of mass scale, um, quantifiable groups of people. 
not a thing. So when I use that term, you know, c- consider that just just the people was it was a means power was exerted by subtracting from people's lives. But Foucault says something interesting occurred. And for him, he's trying to think about the way that wars, in a sense, were conducted in the 19th century onward, right? Where he says that at the time that the sovereign sort of disappeared, we saw the most bloody wars to have ever occurred. So he says that this kind of turn is ironic, because at the same time, rather than power being exerted over one's ability to take away life, suddenly the kind of uh, societal imperative was for the maintenance of society, was for the maintenance of the social body of the populations that comprise that very society, or in his words, this death that was based on the right of the sovereign is now manifested as simply the reverse of the right of the social body to ensure, maintain, or develop its life. So Foucault gives us a pretty good answer to this question, or this kind of concern for him, because he says, because, he says, the uh, transfer of power was delivered from, my God, was delivered from the sovereign onto the social, or onto populations, where their primary imperative was to keep populations going through the right of life over death, what that demanded then was broader scale attacks on those populations because no longer was it a case of there being you know subjects to a singular point of power but because power was everywhere it demanded a total overhaul a kind of total attack on total populations so in his words if genocide is indeed the dream of modern powers this is not because of a recent return to the ancient right to kill it is because power is situated and, and situated and exercised at the level of life, the species, the race, and the large-scale phenomena of population. So death as it occurred within any kind of social body, like in the case of the death penalty, was something that the system was kind of ashamed of because it was really a measure of uh, extending life. At least that's how authority or power was measured. So death then, as Foucault tells us, is power's limit. So there, these kind of full-scale attacks in the, in the name of life, in the name of race, in the name of populations, were able to be conducted because there was a very, um, the, the discourses surrounding what constituted life, what constituted in-group populations, had a sort of authoritative spin to them that they were able to then convince those people that others did not belong to that category, that others did not share the same kind of inalienable rights that the in-group had, or whatever group you, you know, fill in the blank here. So the body was then kind of given uh, two, kind of given two new faces, where the body was considered a machine, that is, optimization of capabilities, and number two, a body as a species imbued with the mechanisms of life. So in that way, with a whole kind of general rhetoric, an authoritative power formed around the notion of life as opposed to death, things like suicide became kind of political strategies to refuse that system, to say no in a form of kind of thanato politics, an idea that's um, rather prominent in some uh, queer study circles. Uh, Thanato politics is being that which can oppose this biopolitical type framework. So biopolitics, bio being like life, biology, and politics, we know politics. So some of the main concerns of biopolitics then were things like the longevity of life, the birth rate, the public public health and housing, and migration. And all of these were controlled and mandated through what he calls biopower. And biopower is a part of a kind of general logic of, you know, the enlightenment of Western civilization that he he presents in um, the birth of the clinic, especially when there was that kind of odd sudden desire for people to start cutting open corpses, right? And to get into the dark recesses of the human body, to demystify it, to give it a kind of truthfulness. Biopower operates 
in that way as a kind of logic of a, of a of the system. So in that way, he says that it precedes capitalism. So it's not as though capitalism pushes this to come into being, but rather, if anything, it's the other way around, where capitalism is a consequence of biopower, because then you're able to control populations in terms of class, in terms of uh, productive capabilities in the labor force, or anything like that. So the the Marxists are ripping out their hair right now, with probably good reason, but I agree with Foucault. Sorry. So now that that a discourse was forming around the body, where it came down in many and to to some extent to the very functioning of the human body in its all its kind of individualistic or not individualistic kind of um, separate assemblages then power was able to have a kind of heterogeneous face, right? Or face that would reduce it to a single point, but it was it was heterogeneous because it had to meet the demands of a heterogeneous subject formation within that very system. So it's in that way that um, uh, power was actually gained access to the body, but it was a much more pernicious uh, control because at one time it was just a question of life and death. If you are alive, it is because you have been granted life by the sovereign. If you are dead, it's because your life has con it, you aren't considered useful being alive anymore, or you're a threat being alive. Now it comes down to control, down to the very atoms that make up our bodies, right? So then you fill in all the discourses around psychological quote-unquote disorders, anything like that, that can move to control populations and control people to some extent to then work within the parameters of a system that is constructed rather arbitrarily yet very effectively so then this marks in a sense a kind of end to law right laws it was attached to the logic of the sovereign of there being a single point of power that exerted itself um, over the people now we see through its heterogenization through its being rendered capillary or granular, we see that form of law come to dissipate, come to, to dissolve. So then it is in with, it's as a result of this system that we see things develop like racism because we have conceptions or notions of race being developed within uh, this discourse of populations and species and the kind of um, biological determinism pertaining to various bodies, right? Which, you know, I have a pretty big problem with. Like, this is where I would disagree with Foucault to some extent. Because he reduces the development of racism to a singular point, right? By the state. By the kind of state apparatuses. Or by this very uh, general logic. Whereas, you know, racism occurs across many in many different places across the globe. At, before this time or after this, after this time that have not been affected by the same system. And perhaps it could be said that the same things were occurring, however, you know, more limited, or more limited, just in a different capacity in that in those histories should be traced. But it just seems a little bit reductive to me to reduce it to that, but that's, it, we have it here. So race and racism develop out, outside, within this system for these very reasons. So then he opens up a kind of dichotomization between sex and sexuality, where he says that we are mistaken if we think that sex is the ultimate objective, where if we liberate sex, then suddenly everything will be all good. For Foucault, in fact, he says that sexuality is that which precedes sex. So I think when he's talking about sexuality, we think of the performative nature of sexuality, right? We aren't necessarily considering the, the true quote-unquote true biological or physiological claims to sexuality, but rather the way that it is constructed within a kind of discursive framework and the way that it is promoted as such. So he says that um, sexuality, because it precedes sex for him, whatever that means, but I think that there is some truth to that, especially if we consider the kind of uh, Butlerian, Butlerian uh, notions pertaining to sex in that way, because sexuality precedes sex, we should not consider it subordinate to sex, right? Where the, you know, what first-year undergrads learn about the difference between sex and gender, 
Foucault's turning that whole thing over on its head and saying that it's not as though sex is that which engenders gender, but it is the other way around, if anything, where gender is that which determines sex. So it's that those discursive frameworks that even govern the physical bodies that then demonstrate, perform these discursive practices. So he leaves us off here in this book with a kind of um, cryptic, uh, cryptic passage. He kind of gives us uh, a strategy of resistance that goes as follows. We must not focus on sex desire, but rather on bodies and pleasure. Now, what the hell does that mean? Because that would seem as though he's giving, he's, he's almost doing exactly what he says we shouldn't be doing, right? He's saying that we should focus on bodies and pleasure, a kind of liberatory uh, practice as opposed to sex desire, right? Because he has that whole section about how desire, as I kind of traced here, is wrapped up with power. So I don't know what, if he's suggesting that there is actually a way out of power, if there is, if he is kind of giving us a schematic for an opposition to power by focusing on, instead of that, bodies and pleasure, which he doesn't really outline here. And in the second and third volumes, he doesn't really outline either. I don't know about the fourth one. I haven't read it yet. But yeah, it's a pretty cryptic. I'd be really curious to see what other people have to say, if, if anything at all. Because I don't know what it means. Like, I think I know what it means. But I think that wh what I think it means undermines this whole project because it just reinvigorates the sense of that kind of liberatory zone of sexuality. But I could be way off base with that. I'd be ultra curious to see what anyone else has to say, though. And I guess, shit, if you made it this far, cool. But on that note, I don't think there's much more to say about it. I think I beat this one to death. Uh, for anyone that made it this far, if you have any problems with what I said, you know how to leave it. But if not, you know, 